Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm well overall. I really am. But I, I did have a, a thought today, um, thought relevant to our times. It occurred to me in... Uh, I was talking to a neighbor, and we ended up shaking hands. It just seemed like a very obvious thing to do. And I realized that in the last, I don't know, 12 to 14 months, I've only shaken a few hands, maybe three men and one woman that I can recall, you know? And just the thought of that really freaked me out because I'm a handshaking sort of person. I'm pretty demonstrative, pretty physical that way. And it just seems like it's an appropriate thing to do a lot of the time. And suddenly it isn't, you know? And it's... um, it's one of the aspects of, of recent times that, that uh, has quietly gotten to me. So I thought about that, but uh, overall good. Yeah, that's something that I think about a lot. I've recently been reading a lot of uh, Giorgio Agamben, an Italian philosopher who writes a lot about biopolitics, which is this concept that Foucault really pushed in the 60s. Um, and he took a lot of heat once the pandemic started because he, um, well, I guess he's what you might call a COVID skeptic in almost every sense of the name. So to some people that, you know, turns you into persona non grata, but I find his uh, writing to be very interesting, whether you agree with all of his conclusions or not. One thing that he talks about very much is this concept of bare life and how with the governmental restrictions and surveillance apparatus, uh, but also, you know, people's internal sensors and, you know, doing things like keeping six feet away from people and not wanting to touch other human beings. He, he talks about how we're reducing the human experience to something called bare life, where you're alive, but you're not really doing any of the things that make life worth living. Now, I know when you bring things like this up online, people immediately start to scoff and say, you know, we're in the fog of war right now and, you know, just stop being a, a wimp and buck up and, you know, just deal with it. But I really don't think that something as simple as handshakes or hugs or, uh, you know, being able to see an entire human being's face, um, I don't think that we should... Uh, be so quick to scoff about those things going away temporarily, but uh, who knows how long temporarily is, really. Well, I think that is the problem. Uh, it's interesting, that phrase, bare life. I mean, I certainly understand it as you explain it. To me, that almost has a, a positive sort of D.H. Lawrence quality of naked life, rare life, uh, you know, really raw and involved and physical and just the opposite of, of what he means. But I think it's very, uh, it's very frightening what, what is meant by that term and, and the long-term effect it may have on younger people. And I would say that um, the practical tip, uh, which I have for the end of our part two segment behind the paywall, deals with the, the sense of touch and how important that is to our imaginative life and to cognitive function. So if people are, are interested in 
that notion of how important touch might be. I've got a really simple exercise that I, I, I think brings that back into to focus a little bit because it is certainly something that we we intuitively know we're all we've all been missing you know we really do uh it's a question of what we do about it but this practical tip is is something that is uh it's covid friendly it's hygienic it's you know you no need to worry but it does uh it does focus on the power of of touch and physicality Mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah hopefully people will follow us over there to the patreon paywall side to hear that practical tip there's that and there's also at this point 11 other practical tips um i'm not actually did we start doing that from the beginning of the patreon episodes maybe not but there's several um talking about covid and handshakes in particular is a great way to start this episode and before anybody turns it off, we are actually not going to be talking about COVID itself, but something that sprung up in the kind of mental stew that the pandemic brought along. I was thinking about conspiracy theories because of our last episode in which we talked about Malaysia Air Flight 370 and its mysterious disappearance. And I began thinking about conspiracy theories at large which have always been a facet of culture, particularly American culture, um, a healthy distrust of governmental entities, politicians, uh, even celebrities, has always been present as long as um, there has been a newspaper to not believe. But in recent times, I've felt that because of COVID and because of the the distrust that has been sown amongst the medical establishment and our, our leaders with their response to the pandemic, um, conspiracy theory has taken on a distinctly negative tone when it's mentioned in the mainstream news and usually by anybody of a leftward persuasion that you happen to get into a, a casual discussion with, usually at least six feet away and outside, if not you know over Zoom. So people got to a certain point in the pandemic where they were hearing a lot of conflicting news about things like the severity of the virus, um, things like mitigation methods. There were talks of a vaccine, but nobody was really sure if they wanted to take it because we had, you know, Donald Trump as our president and didn't necessarily inspire confidence that his Operation Warp Speed would produce something that was worth, you know, injecting into your body. So what ended up happening, I think, was uh, people started turning to alternative sources for their news. They turned away from CNN and Fox, and they began to go into the dark corners of the internet. And from these dark corners sprang up movements like QAnon, um, Infowars saw a huge surge in popularity, including an appearance by Alex Jones on the Joe Rogan podcast several times. And what this tended to do was create an almost completely parallel source of information that people were getting through the internet. And the powers that be, mainly on social media sites, but also obviously in the legacy news, decided that these lines of thought could not exist. So the demonization campaign 
to end conspiracy theory as we know it began censorship of information on social media. Um, and with some cause, I don't know if I would call it good cause, but with some cause, they were able to, of course, find the craziest, nuttiest, crackpottiest, most dangerous ideas, particularly relating to the, you know, things like the Sandy Hook massacre, uh, all the way to goofy stuff like, is the moon even real? And paint a picture of conspiracy theorists as relatively unhinged, antisocial, anti-American people. So that's my preamble for this. What I would like to do in this episode, because Chris, you and I are going to talk about more conspiracy theories in the future because they're fun and a lot of them have a Charles Fort angle to them. So before we do that, I wanted to discuss ways in which perhaps conspiracy theory can actually be a valuable way of analyzing the world and the information that we're given from all of the various sources, how we put conspiracy theories into our toolkit, something that we can take out and utilize and then put back when it no longer serves us. So what do you think about all that? You ready to to take this conspiracy journey with me? Oh, yeah. No, definitely. I think this is a very, very important topic for our time. Uh, I think there there is sort of some background context and to some extent a connecting of dots with uh, some angles that we, we have talked about and introduced uh, previously that I think are, it, it's a matrix in which to sort of place uh, this particular discussion, because I think there are, there are some points that have crossed over into topics we've dealt with, and certainly they will be part of topics we will continue to look at. Um, it seems to me that one of the things that is going on with a relatively recent uh, adoption of the phrase conspiracy theory, we can look at media analytics and see that that has, is a phrase that has really risen very sharply in usage in, in the media in the last two years. Um, so it's gotten a level of public penetration, which is a very, very odd because for, for many people, uh, and I think you and I would be included, it's been something we've been interested in for a very long time. And we see a huge diversity of uh, almost an ecosystem of conspiracy theories. Uh, it, they define in many ways the modern era. They have an enormous amount to do with uh, societal interaction with mainstream media and the, they, they are really uh, predetermined in a sense or dependent upon or predicated on the existence of mainstream media because that then creates the need for alternatives uh, when we don't believe the mainstream media. So without that frame, I think it's, it's difficult to understand conspiracies uh, but there is old as culture, as you say, and there are some really wonderful moments throughout human history around the world where conspiracies come to the fore for a range of reasons. And I think that, that you could do a beautiful sort of graphing, a visualization of, of where the conspiracy idea 
takes hold of societies of many, many different kinds. Uh, it's usually a period of fragmentation, of a collapse of structure, a collapse of belief in some older systems. It's a very, very much a grassroots attempt to recreate or create a new uh, sense of a framework of believability of anything. And it may appear, uh, they often take the form of, of negation of, of mainstream stories or official government stories, uh, as in the uh, Malaysian Flight 370 episode we did last time. But there, there also can be seen in very much a positive, constructive, at least creative way. And let's face it, we're never going to get societal or uh, lowercase c cultural creation that isn't a little bit chaotic. I mean, that's going to be by definition. So I think we are ready to go off on uh, an interesting adventure here. Um, but I do think it's it's wise to say that this uh, we're not trying to... Uh, cover the entire notion of conspiracy theories in this episode, but maybe to lay down some principles of, of the mechanics of how they work, what structural value they offer to people who engage in them. Uh, is it possible to not engage with them? I would ask that question because I know a lot of people who think uh, in terms of totally negative uh, views about conspiracy theories, and yet, and then the next sentence they will launch into one of their own, you know. And uh, I don't know if they'll often agree of it with that. Um, and some people know who I'm talking about because I'm talking about them. Um, and and I think we all know some people like that. Uh, but we did say last time, which just as a final sort of point of reference here, that. With the notion of, of media narratives, that people see narratives when they don't feel a part of them. They see the other side's narrative. That's just a narrative. But of course, what they're believing in is, is the truth. They're following the science or whatever. They, they have some rationalized rhetorical bastion of support for their point of view, which is also a filter that makes it so they don't see the narrative idea. And so therefore, they certainly don't see any conspiracy theories that they're involved with. So, but the one thing just on a housekeeping general framework note, I want to remind listeners that we are continuing our experiment with David as the subject. Uh, he again has a special challenge He's been given five words. He has two to choose from that he has to integrate as uh, quietly and uh, stealthily as possible into the discussions. But we're listening out for his choices. And um, I've worked through some cool quarterly prizes. So for people who are listening carefully, you can email us at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. And we are keeping track. Some cool presents for people who can pick out David's thought patterns of how he integrates these word choices. And we're upping the ante behind the paywall with uh, a special imaginative, creative challenge for each episode. So he's going to have to continue 
with the discussion, the investigation, but meanwhile running a separate channel of brain pattern, come up with a solution. So he's only going to know the challenge at the start of part two, and then at the end we'll hear his response. So there we go. <laughs> it's great. It's great to have my brain going on two different tracks like that because it's usually the way that I think in general, but in a much less organized way. So it is sort of nice to have these different, um, you know, thought trajectories to go on. But I want to respond really quick, just as a kind of a funny thing. You had mentioned earlier that people who decry the idea of conspiracy theory up and down and then turn right around and have a conspiracy theory of their own. There's one really funny one that I that I noticed, and this is about COVID. And at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there were a lot of conspiracy theorists, um, sort of anti-COVID uh, conspiracy theories about the way that the case and death number was being presented by the mainstream media. There's all this kind of talk about how PCR tests weren't reliable and how, uh, you know, what the definition of a case is was changed by the CDC. And this idea that people who had already passed away were being retroactively uh, added onto the tally as, as deaths by COVID. So there's all this suspicion about it. And you get folks who sort of trust these numbers who came out and said, well, no, this is, you know, this is the CDC. These are the, these are the numbers that are accurate. You know, the health departments report these and the CDC just compiles them. So, and there's no real reason for people to lie about this and on and on and on. Right. Fast forward to early this year when different states are reporting their numbers. And it's very important to see how different states did over the winter because some states, if you'll remember, locked down like California and other states didn't like Florida. And so when you would compare the graphs of cases and deaths between Florida and California, uh, in terms of people per million, they ended up being almost identical. And so what that might suggest from the data there's a lot of factors that go into this. So this is very much a generalization, but what that might suggest is that lockdowns didn't have any real effect, right? Because California was very strict and Florida was not strict at all. People were going to clubs and partying and all this. And then I immediately saw those same people who said, no, we have to trust these numbers. They turned around and said, uh, well, Florida's clearly got to be making that up. There's no way that's true. And I thought, oh, how interesting. So the numbers aren't reliable anymore. Okay. But I say that not to, um, to dunk on anybody, but just to say that I think that both sides in that actually might be correct because my conspiracy brain works in such a way that I don't believe uh, anything that comes out of official governmental press release style news. So I think that might be kind of a good place to start uh, Chris, to you, to you, what is having a conspiracy brain and when is it a good idea to turn it on and turn it off? Okay, that is a good question. Uh, well, my answer is this. I, I think the kind of 
uh, mentality and, and cognition that you're referring to falls under the larger uh, rubric of pattern recognition, mm-hmm. which is a, a fundamental human trait. Uh, it, it defines so much of the human experience uh, from the, the barest, rawest visual perception of patterns in a hunting and gathering sort of sense to deeper and deeper conceptual levels of pattern recognition. And that really is the basis of, of society. It's the basis of culture, lowercase c. And I think that in our discussions of uh, culture with a capital C, which we refer to as the ghost radio signal, in our part two investigations, this is a really, really important kind of human magic. And as with any form of human magic, it can go too far. Uh, an analogy also would be, in very physical terms, the idea of pure, uh, cures and poisons. You know, it is a fact that, that many, many physical medicinal cures are a kind of poison, just in a small dose. And there's that issue of, of dosage or spectrum uh, you know, we can look at it in different ways. Shades of degree is what we're talking about. But the ability, I think, to engage with the conspiracy mindset in a positive sense is deeply connected with the ancient and global human suspicion that the world, as we perceive it physically, is not necessarily what it seems. And upon that basis has sprung all our knowledge Everything from language, religion, magic, science. The essence of science is that, you know, things aren't really what they appear to be, as it turns out. And we have to look even more closely uh, in very, very physical Newtonian scale terms to get anywhere understanding nature and reality and what we mean by the universe. So in in that sense, it's an enormously... uh, positive, invigorating way to look at the world of thinking, well, how do these things interact? How do they relate? It's very dynamic and, and relationship-based. It's not static. And it's, it's, it takes that Jungian sense of, I'm going to get involved with the world. And, and we've used the example of Solomon Islanders dismantling a giant earth-moving machine. So they might understand it better, so they might know about replacement parts, but also so they can work their local culture and magic into it. And in that sense, I think conspiracy theories have a very positive grassroots, uh, religious, um, practical magic uh garage-level science to them that I find kind of inspiring. Now, you can do a lot of things in a garage uh, that maybe aren't so good. You know, you can have a meth lab. You know, you can be uh, hoarding weapons, of course. But to me, the argument that all conspiracy theories are negative and are only the, you know, propagated by loons is a little analogous to the arguments against pornography where you choose the most outrageous and borderline examples where really that's like a tiny, tiny percentage of the total. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's my initial response to that. No, that's. I think that's really great, and I think that it's important to keep that in mind. That the idea of the conspiracy theory is very much a spectrum, where on one hand you have some very practical uh, tools that conspiracy brings, such as the idea that power might not be trustworthy because it may always be compromised either by money or propagating itself. You know, I tend to think that when people get into institutions of power and they have all of these goals and career aspirations, um, their thought process and the way that they choose to uh, disseminate information and the things that they choose to keep hidden might actually be influenced by that money and power, which I don't think is a very uh, far out idea. Another thing conspiracy does, you mentioned, you know, the web of connections. It, I think it really does kind of help to inhabit an almost conspiracy spirit every once in a while and attempt to see the patterns, attempt to put the red thread from one part of the corkboard to the next and really create this web of, of interbeing uh, sort of nefarious uh, <laughs> characters, you know? I think it's a good method for storytelling and kind of understanding the, the way the world might actually work. I tend to think that conspiracy theorists, though their ideas might be a little nutty sometimes, do have a closer idea as to as to how the world works, right? So on the one hand, it rectifies the problem presented by mainstream um, mainstream media in which, you know, they all have advertisers, they all have sponsors, and therefore they will always, in a sense, be compromised. And it also helps to, you know, create this, this web of, of connections, which leads me into my next uh, question here, which is when it comes to conspiracy... Um, what do you think do you think that there is an a kind of almost mythic element to some of these and we we've talked before about things like urban legends um do you think that it is helpful to maybe approach conspiracy theory from a from a metaphorical standpoint and if so you know what does it mean to say that we that we never went to the moon even if we did Okay, well, that's a very, that's an outright exciting question. Uh, I think there are two aspects to this. I think on the one hand, it's impossible not to intermesh conspiracy theories or urban legends with some sort of underlying framework of archetypal experiences in a, in a kind of Jungian sense. I think we do that without knowing it. And I think that, that you can look at how the responses go to conspiracy theories in terms of degrees of education, how familiar people are with earlier patterns of, of, of theories in certain directions. Some people see this whole thing as something that just emerged wholesale yesterday. Um, and some people realize, no, look, this has been a, a big deal for quite some time. There's one element that's been huge since uh, World War II and the Cold War years. Other people would say, no, look, this is an on. This is the, the essence of history. This goes way back in time. This goes back to biblical stories, to mythic stories from around the world. They're all examples of conspiracy theory. They're all examples of gossip. Remember, Truman Capote said all 
all literature is, is, is based on gossip. And I think gossip is, is, is an interesting word in the concept, in the context of conspiracy theories. So these have, they've been around a long time, but I do think that where conspiracy theories are intentionally propagated for rhetorical purposes, whether that be political advantage, social leverage, money, they're, they've been great money spinners for many people. Um, I can think of a whole, I can think of at least 10 writers that have made their living entirely on conspiracy theories, and they would be quite happy with that label. Um, they've, they've investigated them from many different points of view. Jim Mars is a good example. Who's, he's probably his best work has been on the JFK thing. Um, so I think there's two sides to, to the, the use of deep mythic patterns one is that we really can't avoid them. It's a question of how sophisticated our knowledge is of them and how well we can navigate those. The other idea is that, yes, there, there are a, just as there are a certain number of plots, supposedly, available to, to fiction and, and the theater, uh, there are only a set number of patterns, of algorithms. And somehow new conspiracies sort of intermingle with these and affix themselves to them uh, and grow out of them, out of that substrate. There are only so many substrates that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think that there are only so many substrates. And what I'm gathering, building off of what you said, is that if you cut yourself off from conspiracy theory, you are cutting yourself off of what's already a very limited range of substrates to, to choose from. That's well said. That, that's a really good argument for uh, the beginnings, anyway, of an argument for the positive nature of, of conspiracy theories and what they can teach us about culture. That if we say, well, I'm, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Those people are nuts. Uh-huh. You know, if we if we really try to uh, put up barriers that way, we're also then saying there's a certain part of of human interaction that we did, we choose not to understand, that we're not curious about, which is very very uh, sad to me. No, absolutely. I it, it's it gets so complex too, and I think that there is a real value in deciding what it is that you want to know things about and then focusing on those things to the exclusion of some other things. I'll give you a good example. So my father, who has to be brought into any conversation about conspiracy theories because he texts me usually eight or nine times a day with uh, some sort of right-wing, usually vaguely QAnon-ish, conspiracy theory about how either the election was stolen um, or China, you know, intentionally implanted COVID to wreck the economy of the U.S., especially, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you take something like the election being stolen, which is kind of our modern, one of our big modern conspiracy theories that actually led to real physical consequences on January 6th of this year, I... I looked at different websites um, 
that you're not going to find uh, on Facebook because they're all banned. Um, and I, I did a real look into what the evidence is for the election having been stolen by the Democratic Party. Conversely, I went to Barnes & Noble with my um, son the other day, which was a fun adventure. Gus actually let me browse the stacks, which was really nice, to <laughs> nice of him. Cool. Um, and saw the entire front-facing display of the sort of current affairs section of Barnes & Noble were all books about how Trump lost the election and how there is no conspiracy theory and how the <coughs> excuse me how the election was a completely legitimate affair there's nothing weird going on whatsoever now I'll withhold judgment on all of that but what's interesting is that on a lot of the sort of pro election being stolen side the people who believe that the election was stolen there was one particular guy who said, you know, I have, here's my seven hour presentation where I've compiled all of the evidence that I have that this election was stolen. Seven hours. But then you look at these books and they're, I don't know, 300 pages and there's a bunch of them. So that's probably several dozen hours worth of reading you could do that could prove to you that <laughs> that the election was in fact legitimate and there was no funny business going on at all. Now, if I was, if that was my thing, or if I was, uh, you know, if I was a JFK guy, or if I was a CIA guy, which is a archetype of internet denizen that's popping up a lot lately, people who are really into talking about things like MK Ultra and you know the Contras and all of the various uh, strange misdeeds the CIA has gotten up to in its short lifespan. If, if you're going to do that, you do kind of do that to the detriment of the rest of your kind of knowledge of the world. So what do you do about that, man? I mean, like, what do you, uh, how do you, how do you balance all of this stuff? You know, like how I could actually just use the example that I just used, and I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you you know, say, well, you know, was the election stolen or was it legitimate? Um, but, but what do you, what do you do when you're confronted with all of that evidence sort of on both sides? How do you, how do you make value judgments about which conspiracies are worth your time and which ones are not? Okay. Well, this is something we're all facing, you know, all the time. But again, I, I think it's important to to remember that this is not new. I mean, it may seem very new to people right now, and I'm not saying it doesn't have a particular urgency now, but, you know, we're always obsessed with what's happening in the moment because we're becoming more and more amnesia driven and forget that, well, actually some people have lived before us and they've been through some, some weird things. Um, let me put this frame down on what's going on. A lot of what is happening with the conspiracy theory idea, and really that's part of our ideological obsession now, isn't it? I mean, we've got, uh, in America, it, it really, there, there's a sort of unfortunate common idea that we're somehow divided into two teams because that's about the level that people can work on. Um, the idea that there, that there aren't teams or tribes, that maybe it's a bit more confusing than that. Uh, we don't really 
want to deal with that. And the media is certainly herds people into two fairly large uh, and, and stupidly defined camps. But when people get obsessed with, with news at that level, I'd suggest a model for this is, is advertising. And there are two fundamental kinds of, of advertising messages, which we forget. One is retail. It's an immediate buy now. It's got a very clear call to action. The other is brand advertising. Brand advertising is, is one of the biggest things going. What, what's the point of it? Well, it reinforces people's decision to have purchased. You bought this so you feel good about yourself. So you feel good about the brand and you begin to identify with the brand, which is a very peculiar psychological phenomenon. Uh, it does go back far in time, but it's become one of the, the signal traits of the modern age in our contemporary era, brand identification, part of our obsession with identity generally. And people connect with this, so they're not really connecting with the ideas and the ideology so much. The first thing they're looking for is personal identification reinforcement. Anything that reinforces their position is good, Anything that challenges or contradicts their position is not good. And that is a, a very uh, crude, uh, oafish, uh, not very uh, intellectually nuanced way of living. But it's a very simple way of living. And it helps in yeah. a confusing time. So right. it, it's a way, it's a framework, it's a tool that people are using. And as with any blunt tool... It, it yeah it can it can do some things it can do some things I mean a hammer can do a lot of different things it but sure it's can. not great for making a souffle with you know not that I know of no no and it feels like you know you have to suss out what you want to actually do with your life and what your values actually are. And whether or not, you know, falling down these particular conspiracy rabbit holes are even worth your time. But a very important thing that you said there touches on the importance of actually entering into intellectual arenas that cause some serious dissonance in your brain. This is something that I'm blessed to have uh, taken a lot of pleasure in over the past few years. I love encountering new ideas that turn everything that I thought I knew on my head. I get called a contrarian a lot, and there's some truth to that. But I really enjoy um, hearing things that make me go, oh, I never I never thought about it that way. Maybe that's the way that reality actually works. But it's funny because I'm listening to you uh, talk about, you know, the different types of advertising and how it's branding. <clears throat> and I think, you know, well, that's not me because, you know, I'm always looking for the thing that blows up my brand. And then I thought, oh God, that is my brand. It's when you think, <laughs> it's when you think that the, uh, it's when you think that the magic isn't working on you. That just means it really has the hooks in deep. When things start to feel like just reality, like you start using tautologies. Well, that's true because that's just true. That's when you're, you're in it then, buddy. That's when they yes, bash you. Yes, yes. Well, that that is true. You know, I mean, it's uh, I 
I think we all need a, a model to deal with that. And, and the, the person who comes to my mind is my stepfather, who was one of the most, I mean, he, there were a lot of cool things about him. I, I did not get along well with him, I have to say. He was one of the most rigid, linear-minded uh, people. Um, I mean, he came from the southeast corner of Iowa, not far from the Mississippi River, a very small farming community. What did they farm? Corn, of course. Uh, he did achieve the rank of captain during in the Army. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. And he was a longtime middle manager of uh, the soft drink uh, division of Safeway. In, oh, dear. Uh, yeah. He was. The, you know, but, thank God those people exist, though. You know, I just want to throw that out there. But man, oh, look, I, I know, the, I know the type of person you're talking you know, about. Yeah, I know you you're know. talking about. But here, here was an example of, of his thinking. And this. Uh, it relates to drugs, but it, it was it could be applied across the board. This would appear in myriad forms across his life because he he liked the thinking, and the thinking was marijuana is bad. Why is it bad? Because it's illegal. It was illegal then, of course. Why is it illegal? Because it's, it's bad. bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was there was always a self-reinforcing, you know, position. And uh-huh. this could be recycled in so many different ways. I mean, he, he was not a, a, a drinker at all, but he would have a, a, a light beer with a slice of pizza. Why? Because you have a light beer with a slice of pizza. Everything he did was its own reinforced reason for existence. Oh dear! Oh and my God! To 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 have questioned that would produce a frozenness, a facial expression that was physically painful to watch. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I know a lot of people like that. I experienced that very much in my youth when I started questioning the religion that I was brought up in. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have that experience. You end up in these circular, you know, why is uh, why is this the thing that we do? It's like, well, it's in the Bible. How do we know that the Bible is true? Because God says it's true. Well, how do you know that? Because it says so in the Bible. Dun, 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 on and on and on. That, that, that circle goes, you know. But, of course, it applies. I mean, this sort of rigidity of thinking, this circularity of thinking, this insulation of thinking, and it really is, it, it's insulation from contradictory views. It's fear of surprise, fear of the unknown, fear of conflict, fear of challenge, uh, fear of growth and, and evolution of, of mind and spirit. I mean, it's as uh, a, much a feature of the so-called progressive frame as, as anything could possibly be. Absolutely. I mean, it's very difficult to be free of this. But, I mean, there's uh, a social media group that roughly describes themselves as liberal atheist feminists. And their sincere belief, I, I'm sure, is that they are the most open-minded uh, people on the planet. And I can tell you with absolute precision that I can predict every single position they could ever take on anything. Yeah, you know? no, th- those three words, liberal, feminist, and atheist, do not bring to mind uh, 
an open-minded group at all. No, um, no. So when it comes to conspiracy theories in particular, do you have any in, any in mind that are particularly uh, demonstrative of a, a wider truth? So basically what I'm asking is, is can we put this um, analysis that we have of the value of conspiracy theories into a, a kind of concrete example for people? Well, you know, I have a weird oblique angle on this. I, I, I want to just put that question aside for just a moment sure. because I think it's yeah. a really great question. Okay. And I want to come back to you with a scenario where we build something very quickly in real time. Okay? Cool. Yep. I want you to imagine that you and I live in Council Bluffs, Nebraska, on, on the Missouri River in, in 1849, 1850, during the Great Oregon Trail rush, right? Okay. Now, you're a blacksmith with an interest in a small uh, hotel, very unfancy even for that time, and I run a mercantile store. And our idea as civic leaders is to send out some outriders to meet the uh, incoming pioneer traffic coming in from the east. And what we're going to do is we want to make sure their business comes to our town, that they supply for the long haul across the prairies with us. We want mm -hmm. that money. We want to, you know, you want to sell horseshoes and uh, iron pots. And, uh, you know, I want to sell beans and fabric and, you know, nails and, uh, ammunition, you know, all sorts of stuff. We want business. Mm -hmm. So we've got a very strong, not just rhetorical direction here, it, it's, it's good old capitalist profit. What we want to do is plant a seed that in a couple of the other big river towns, there's been an outbreak of some kind of disease. Mm -hmm. We don't want to make it too serious, like typhoid fever, uh, or dysentery necessarily, because that could reflect on us. We don't want, maybe we'll just say there's been an outbreak of weird psychological behavior uh, of, of teenage girls who've just started uncontrollably laughing or twitching, or there's a singing or dancing disorder. Remember all the great dancing disorders of the Middle Ages? Mm -hmm. So we're going to oh, yeah. plant a rumor. We're going to get a rumor going that, is going to make some people think, oh, I, I think we're going to give that other town a miss. I think we'll, we'll go on to Council Bluffs and see, you know, people like David and Chris. I so like what would we, you know, how do we construct that? And notice yeah. it's, it is a weapon. We're making a weapon, but it can't be a weapon that's going to necessarily explode on us. I mean, any weapon can be dangerous to the user, too. But I think that's one way to sort of think about, you know, for people who have a totally negative view of conspiracy theories, think of some practical examples of how they work, who benefits. If you're going to be cynical and say, well, you know, there's dark puppet masters behind these things, uh, well, then let's think about what their motives would be, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think yeah. that's a starting point there. Well, what I would do is I would hire someone from out of town, maybe a relative that people wouldn't know was my relative, and I'd cut him in on some of the profits that would come in. Let's say 2%. I'd give him 2% right. 
for the next 10 years if he pulls this off, right? And I would have him go to the local saloon and I would have him just start to uh, kind of talk at length about some of these other towns that he'd visited and start to plant this seed that there's some kind of, uh, yeah, some sort of strange contagion in there. But that's how I would get the information out. You know, I think that I could do that. Or, you know what? This one's even better. There's more than likely a local printing press, right? Do you think the mm-hmm. Council Bluff would have a printing press there? Oh, yes. I think they, oh. I think they would have then. So, you, you know, know simple, the, but nothing kinda, fancy. Kind of boots on the ground might be good. Have some have some agents of disinformation kind of out there spreading wherever they can. Um, influencers, influencers, exactly. But I would also, um, I think that you know, Chris, you as you know, have, running this store, and me as the blacksmith. I think that uh, I think that the newspaper man might be interested in having some extra customers around town, right? Absolutely. So I think I, I say we cut him in. Basically. Absolutely. And I think that it would end up being a little bit like pyramid selling because everyone would start to see some benefit in it for them. And it's a benefit financially, but it's a it, and then it, the other side of it is well they don't want to be on the outside. They don't want to be against the, you know, the grain. This is a little bit of peer pressure or you're in or are you out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how a lot of these things work. I mean, it really becomes, you know, and the more visual, you know, there could be a little secret sign. Are you part of the group? I mean, think of all the secret handshakes that, you know, I mean, that's a classic. It's a, it's a cliche of, of membership in a belief system. But yeah, I think that's exactly how these things uh, develop. Um, right. And for, for those reasons and with those mechanics... But, you know, I, I was thinking of um, when you were talking earlier, it, it, it did cross my mind that one way to um, kind of uh, descale the, the conspiracy idea is to look at something uh, a little bit more on the urban legend and a little bit on the silly front, something that was never really believed, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an important point. But was nonetheless repeated like crazy mm-hmm. and i mean there are many many examples but for whatever <laughs> twisted reason i have always found the richard gear and the gerbil story yes. just hilariously funny oh, and we, my apologies to around. richard gear you know yeah. i i i'm sorry that he had to to deal with that i he i my believe he came forward not too long ago and said you know, just how much grief that, that cost him, which, right. and I don't want to add to that, but I, I'm sorry, I do think it's a very, very funny, outrageous story that does have a lot to teach about the mechanics of rumor and gossip and rhetorical payoffs and identity and all of the stuff that we've been talking about. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. So I recall the Richard Gere story actually being passed around uh, the lunch table in elementary school of all places. And I don't really think we had a firm grasp on who Richard Gere even was. I mean, I'm sure none of us were watching Primal Fear or American Gigolo or anything like that. But we knew there was a guy who put a gerbil in his butt 
and uh, that and that was just kind of that. But I think that that story is so illustrative of a kind of bigger idea. Are you familiar with David Icke? You know David Icke, yes. right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. Yes, I mean, perfect link, perfect. Ba- basically, the Richard Gere story is touching on something that we all intuitively know, that the the clean-cut, white-teeth Hollywood stars that we all know and love probably had to do some relatively demeaning uh, things to get where they were going. This sort of all really came to light with uh, the Harvey Weinstein scandal a few years back, which ended up with him going to prison, and rightly so. Um, But there is this idea, if you keep scaling that up, that people who are in power in the David Icke sense are either automatons, right, who are kind of Manchurian candidates who are placed there very specifically to deliver a kind of uh, a kind of message a sort of propaganda or in ike's terms they are literal reptilians Wait, i'm not super familiar with david ike's uh with david ike's work but i'm pretty sure that that his his contention is that these are literal lizard people the oh the yeah no 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 politicians yes. that they're, they, yes. they're reptilians they have reptilian skin i remember a video that was edited uh, during the 2016 election to show Hillary Clinton's eyes turning suddenly very reptilian, green and reptilian, and how and how that was, you know, I mean, it's obviously a fake video, but a lot of people seized on that really quick, and they're like, what, what, what is that? Like, what's going on? So all of this stuff is, I think, a result um, of uh, a healthy distrust of the people who are put into these positions of, of power and, and public influence. Um, and there's just something, uh, very metaphorically correct about something tiny and innocent, like a gerbil, right? Um, you know, standing in for the conspiracy theorist themselves of just being a complete pain in the ass of one of these celebrities. It works very beautifully <laughs> in, in a metaphorical sense. It, uh, well, look, a couple things to cross reference the, um, reptile thing uh, there are two wonderful things that just I think of. One is uh, before his uh, masturbation scandal, uh, Louis C.K. did a, a radio live appearance uh, with uh, Donald Rumsfeld, and he keeps asking Rumsfeld if he if it's true that he's an, uh, a reptile from outer space, and he just won't let any other ant. You know, he just keeps focused on that. Another uh, reference, which is. I haven't seen it in a while, but it, it was a good work. Sam Shepard wrote a play called Angel City, where the premise is exactly what a lot of people have thought, that underneath the skin, the people like the Harveys of the world, they really are reptiles. And uh, I, I think that's an interesting way to think of, of you know, that, that is kind of what we're saying with the conspiracy theory idea in certain ways that there are secret puppet masters who are hooded or masked or behind screens and if we could get a look at them you know they might take these these alien forms mm-hmm. but if we look at the um the the, the richard gear uh, gerbil story i i think we can break down a couple of the the mechanics of why that works so well because it has been analyzed by um well, I wouldn't say exactly anthropologists, but people who are curious about cultural studies and popular mythology. Um, for one, 
uh, Gear was not the first target of this. That this that that story had been tried out in a, in a kind of experimental sense with other celebrities. It just didn't work as well. So we might want to then ask, well, why why Richard Gere? And I think there are a couple of key points. You mentioned where you first heard the story around an elementary school cafeteria lunch table. That's the perfect gossip. I mean, that's one of many. That's one of our great, you know, we've had, you know, we have hair salons, barbershops in the past, bars, you know, there are a few great watering holes where the rumors spread. Uh, the Australians have a great expression of furphy from uh, World War One, which was a rumor that got spread around the water uh, bucket, you know, because that's it's water cooler talk, you know, and I think that works. Richard Gere works because he's he's a name that you might have heard of, but he's not too famous, you know. He's just famous enough, uh, and I think there's a kind of spectrum there that's perfect. He's perfectly gauged. Then there's the thing of well, there there was some large societal attitudes about gay culture that were being projected in that story. Some of it is negative in the sense of ridicule, I think, no question. Some of it, I think, is kind of uh, a, a, a strange form of admiration that yeah. here were some, you know, the gay guys were out there doing some really crazy stuff. You couldn't, you know, what won't they do? You know, and <laughs> there, what they do. It, it was you know there was that kind of uh, ambivalence about gay culture in that moment where right. there was a lot of acceptance and there was more of a sense of the fact well there could be gay Republicans you know conservative gays you know and yet there was the sense of like well these incredibly wild nightclubs you know from the cruising movie and some of truman capote's stories and james movie, purdy you know wrote about mm -hmm. branding you know irons and coming out in it just you know it it was a it was fun for people to think of a group of people who were sort of really off off the charts, you know, beyond Donkey Show, beyond the Vimar Republic, beyond everything. It was just anything was possible. And from memory, I think there was quite a bit of uh, tabloid speculation at the time, fair or unfair, you know, who, who knows? I mean, this is, we live in the social media cancellation era. But at the time, I, I from memory, I think that Richard Gere was often... Uh, suspected of being in the closet, that his marriage to Cindy mm -hmm. Crawford was a sort of beard thing. And that, so in other words, that there was a kind of pressure placed upon him in this weird campaign that somehow fixated on him, you know, very unfairly, ridiculously. But the whole thing was so ridiculous. I mean, nobody took it seriously. And yet, I think it, it, um, well, it did cause him a lot of, of you know, uh, I think he was able to laugh about it sometimes, but still, but it was so outrageous and he was just famous enough. So I think those are two elements of, of how a rumor or urban legend and therefore in a larger sense, a conspiracy 
theory, how that grows. There are certain mm-hmm. boxes that need to be ticked. And if anything fails at any level, it doesn't pass on to the next threshold, you know? Right. And I like the idea that he was not quite famous enough because a lot of conspiracy theories can't be too obvious or too on the nose. One of the ways that I like to use conspiracy theory, because again, to reiterate, the value that I see in it is just recognizing the interconnectedness of people in power and the influence that power and money has over our institutions and our politicians, right? That's that's where the value really lies as far as I'm concerned. But in some of the crazier um, conspiracy theories, you know, nobody's focusing on the banal conspiracy, which is what really goes on every day. The fact that somebody, uh, you know, that doctors will say that... You know, doctors in the 40s, I should say, will say that certain types of cigarettes are actually better for asthma than others, you know, and it's a clear indicator that they've been, they've been paid. Those are all sort of not, not quite sexy enough. So it has to have, um, it has to have that kind of, uh, not esoteric. What's the word I'm looking for? It has, it has to be just slightly off in such a way. It can't be too on the nose. It has to be something, uh, just a little bit, a little bit strange, you know, a little bit mysterious and James Bond, which is probably why the the Epstein scandal was another big conspiracy theory that that was that was shared to the point where it's now kind of become a meme that's been accepted, like uh, like George Bush did 9/11, which I see Zoomers who were born after 9/11 now sort of sort of sharing as a as a shorthand, a comical shorthand, but a shorthand nonetheless for uh, you know kind of a Am I using this correctly? Would it be a metonym at this point? Like something that yeah. means something much bigger? Not sure if that's correct or not. But uh, anyway, I'll well, stop there. No, but we know what you mean. I think that is. I think that, that that's a, a good way to put it. Um, well, you know, I think that's one of the, the ways that uh, to look at uh, gossip, urban legend, and conspiracy theories. If we look at that as a sort of a, a kind of evolutionary spectrum so if if your if your gossip is successful it becomes a conspiracy theory in that say in that communication sort of way so it either is going to become a cliched level of acceptance well of course you know duh Mm -hmm. or it kind of slips back into total uh obscurity i i remember um, there was uh, Collins Street in Melbourne is, is called sort of the Paris end of, of Melbourne. It's where a lot of the, the expensive retail shops, there were some very, very fancy law offices and quite beautiful buildings. It's, it's near, the top end is near uh, the state parliament. And there was a building that was odd in the sense that it was a 60s brick uh, building sandwiched between these beautiful, beautiful uh, monuments of architecture. And it was never open. It was called the Listening Salon. And mm. it appeared to have once <clears throat> sold very high end German uh, uh, stereo equipment. But nobody had ever, I never saw that place open. And I wondered, how could you afford the rent on that? Yeah. I mean, someone, and if, if you owned the building, God damn, why wouldn't you just bulldoze it and put up, you know, you'd make a fortune. It was just mysterious. 
And I peeked in there once and I noticed a pile of, of mail. And one was, uh, it was a Czechoslovakian name. And I thought, oh, somehow that seemed important. But the, there was a record, an old-fashioned LP in the window that was a little bit sun-faded. And it was a kind of hokey 1960s lounge record called Scandinavian Twilight. Mm. And I was looking at that one day and this homeless guy, and there weren't that many homeless people then, classic sort of Salvation Army guy who was you know, wound into a whole network of, of uh, hidden spirits and voices. And, but he came up and said to me very rationally, he said, if you come back next week, there'll be a different album in the window. <laughs> oh, that's and great. I thought, uh, you know, and I, he said, yeah, yeah, you understand exactly what I'm saying, don't you? And then he wandered off. But I did understand. I mean, somehow, this was like a 12 monkeys sort of messaging to someone, you know, and... Mm -hmm. It certainly helped me make sense of the the contradiction of this ugly, uh, relatively contemporary building that was not apparently being used for the retail purposes it, it appeared to be, and how that could stay there when it could easily be turned into something, a thriving business or bulldozed and made into really expensive condominiums or a hotel or, I don't know, it made sense of things. So I think that is what we seek in conspiracy theories. They are ways of pattern recognition, connecting of dots, incorrectly or not, they satisfy some underlying sense of symmetry. You know, mm -hmm. we think there's a symmetry if we could only grasp the pattern. And I, I think a way to maybe wind this up is a way to connect back with something that you started us off with, with the notion of visualizing these patterns in, in, in really physical terms. And it uh, makes me think of the artist Mark Lombardi, who listeners may be familiar with. He, he, his work is, is very well thought of in, in, in art gallery terms, but he started off very simply and very open-mindedly just drawing connections between people and institutions you know, major politicians and the Trilateral Commission. You could say that he might have had a kind of conspiracy theory bent, but where he was going with that was not at all clear. He was building this up as a work in progress, but he, he happened to have beautiful visual arts diagramming skills, and he would create these amazingly simple but just absolutely beautiful uh, diagrams of, of relationships of power and connection. And people started to think, well, yeah, those, those look really cool, but wait a minute, when we actually read the names, hmm, I didn't know that so-and-so was connected to you. And it suddenly you know, got the attention of the FBI and the CIA and a whole mm -hmm. bunch of other mm -hmm. people. 
And, you know, mysteriously or not, he, he ended up committing suicide, which I think adds to the conspiracy uh, angle quite considerably. But yep. I, I think that's an interesting way of thinking of just... He was particularly uh, skilled at the visualization aspect, but I like that idea of trying to do that. And uh, I will say that, that in part two, we're going to look at... Um, this idea of visualization as a way of coming to terms with deep associative patterns of thinking, because I think on a private scale, uh, in, in this case, my uh, a train of thought uh, or a mosaic of thought that David made me conscious of that I might not otherwise have been, which we, we mentioned that in, in, our, in last week's show. But I, I think this visualization and seeing dynamic relationships that is part of the power of conspiracy theories, the idea that they are relationships, that it's not just static events mm -hmm. uh, at mm -hmm. all, mm -hmm. at all. It's, it's something going on that we don't know about. Right, exactly. And when we're trying to think about things in terms of ecosystems and networks, a guy like Lombardi is really important to look at because you can read a book on the, the Bush dynasty for example going from you know granddaddy bush all the way through to george w and jeb and all these people who we see on our tvs all the time and when you read these books there's all these connections that the author is making it's heavily researched stuff and any given relationship at any given time any picture taken at some sort of fundraiser doesn't really add up to much there was a a trend that was going on during the presidency of Donald Trump to, to find celebrities and politicians who had taken photos with him at these types of fundraisers as a kind of gotcha moment, even though it doesn't really add up to anything because people go to these parties and they take pictures with celebrities. It's a thing that they do. But when you have a Lombardi style, uh, sphere, it looks, these look like spheres, you know, like these big, great, uh, kind of mandala looking things of, of webs, webs of connection to think conspiratorially is to make an attempt to understand the interconnectivity and the um, the imminence right of all of these different relationships that do add up to a cohesive whole in a lot of cases whether or not that whole is actually useful information pragmatically in your life is completely up for debate but uh i i do think that there is a sort of parallel one-to-one -one connection between beginning to think in this way and a very useful way of thinking outside of conspiracy that has to do with things like the relationship between a human and their environment or a human and their community and their environment um so I do think that it's that sort of next level, interconnected, imminence-oriented way of thinking that will help a lot of people break out of this mac. Uh, what's the word? That I'm myopic, um, Twitter-based, two hundred and eighty characters at a time. You know, every day our mind is erased, and every day we are born anew with a new. Uh, a bullshit story that does that doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? I th I think that it's it is an actual mental skill that has far-reaching benefits outside of just finding out 
who killed JFK. Well said, and I, I think those two words of interconnectivity and imminence are very important. Imminence is a lovely idea that, that really needs uh, more thought. For people who, who want to review the definition of that, I think that it's worth doing that because it's very, really rich. It has some very, very interesting ideas of, of the growth from within. It's uh, so different than a, uh, a top-down sort of a, a approach to things but you know in the 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 in seeing those it, it it is worthwhile just to connect back to this notion of of pattern recognition you know connectivity uh i mean we start off with uh, our, our one of our biggest and most important uh conspiracy theories that we buy into is language you know we get involved in that i mean that moment where we realize that to get her, to get her, is also together. Together. We're all together. You know, we start to realize that all of these patterns that we are surrounded by can be pulled apart and examined and looked at in so many different lights. And that's exciting, you know. That should excite curious, energized uh, minds. But if you're... Uh, sort of, you know, thinking that marijuana is illegal because it's bad. And why is it bad? Because it's illegal. Uh, if you're stuck in that mode of why do you have a light beer with a slice of pizza? Because you have a light beer with a slice of pizza. There's no, uh, there is no imminence. There's no uh, interconnectivity beyond uh, the barriers that you've uh, established. So you're really, it's kind of like uh, that wonderful uh, movie that I remember they showed. I think we saw it in sixth grade. A room full of mouse traps rigged with ping pong balls. And it sets off this chain reaction. But of course, at the end, you know, it doesn't go on because there are only so many mousetraps with bing bong balls on them. It finally gets quiet. And I think that's what happens inside, you know, a lot of heads that it does seem very chaotic and, and interesting. But if, if you keep the same walls, uh, well, you know, you're not going to have uh, certain kinds of growth, certain kinds of possibilities. And things will always uh, look kind of the same way to you. Whereas if you can just shift one wall and maybe think, oh, you know, I didn't really think of it that way before. Um, that is a kind of weird coincidence. Or I don't know how to explain that. I mean, those are just good open-handed, open-minded questions, right? <laughs>